The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see... We still, to a large extent, live in the interregnum between, between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Zero Squared is the Zero Books podcast. Alex Hokuli is a writer and research consultant based in Sao Paulo, Brazil. He has bylines in Jacobin, The Baffler, NBC, The Brazilian Report, and other publications where he writes on global and Brazilian politics, as well as film and urbanism. He is the editor and co-host of the global politics podcast, Afa Bunga Bunga, and he's the co-author, along with George Hore and Philip Cunliffe, of the upcoming book, The End of the End of History. Alex, welcome back. To the zero thank you channel. thank you i'm glad to be yeah. back yeah. yeah so i was looking at your book again um the end of the end of history and i tell you something the last time we spoke uh your book um resonated with me intellectually um but today i feel i'm feeling the burn the burn <laughs> out um <laughs> i i'm i am uh uh, looking around at the left and, and my own life and feeling as though uh, I'm sort of spent and um, the end of the end of history doesn't feel uh, as optimistic as, uh, as I might've expected. Mm. Um, and reading your, your uh, introduction again to the book, it, it doesn't seem like you were feeling particularly optimistic either when you wrote about, let's say the failure of the Corbyn and Sanders campaigns in the U S and UK um, so I'm just wondering, how are you feeling? Are you feeling, uh, burned out lately or do you feel more optimistic than I do? Well, I mean, because I'm not in Brazil at the moment, um, that already puts my optimism a little bit higher <laughs> than it was previously. But, um, I think, yeah, I mean, you're right that if the book had been written in 2018, 19, I think it would maybe have a different complexion because it would be talking about what is the possibility perhaps that, Sanders and Corbyn uh, primarily, but not only, uh, would be able to take their projects to the next level, uh, which obviously wasn't the case. And we, when we wrote it, it was very obvious that already Corbyn had failed and Sanders it was still up in the air. And I think as we were putting the finishing touches on the book, Sanders dropped out of the race in the US. Mm -hmm. um, and already, I think, I, I, I mean, certainly closer watchers of US politics than myself would attest to the fact that it probably didn't have that same populist energy in 2020 as it did in 2015-16. So that is definitely, I, I think we can say that coronavirus, although a completely a sort of random event, I guess, something completely unexpected and exogenous, it was something that, um, despite those factors, was something that kind of put paid to, uh, or at least was coincidental with the ending of left populism. And in, in maybe, in a way, uh, putting uh, putting uh, the kind of closure on the populist decade. Because I think, 
it would be uh, remiss of us to ignore the fact that the 2020s was a populist decade, um, certainly in Europe, maybe not so much in the US, but across Europe, it was a constant you mean the, concern the from the 2010s, not the 2020s. We're still just beginning the 2020s. Yes, that's right. Did I say 2020s? I meant the 2010s. Yeah. Uh, if, I, if I said the wrong yeah. thing, yeah. Um, no, so the, <laughs> I'm living in the future. I'm talking about it's not what? 2030 yeah. already, is it? Oh my God. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's depressing. Um, uh, no, the 2010s was a populist decade. Um, mm. And I think a lot of what we're seeing now is in some ways, um, in, you know, maybe even a response to a lot of kind of populist upsurges that happened across the decade. So, you, yeah, this is something I wanted to ask you about is why you characterized Corbyn and Sanders as representing a left populism rather than some kind of socialist movement. I think primarily because they depart from a traditional socialist understanding, which is rooted in the working class as the, the primary agent, the primary subject of that sort of politics. Uh, they try to appeal to different groups. They try to pull together a coalition, which includes sections of the middle class, perhaps more downwardly mobile middle class, which I think lots of people would argue are the primary kind of ended up the primary spokespeople for um, for that. And you can look and you can see that through um, key policies around education, for example, around high access to higher education, which um, I think by necessity ends up being something that appeals primarily to middle class or middle class aspirants. So um, I, not to say that it's a bad policy, but I think uh, we have to look at it as, you know, as what it is. Um, okay. But also, so yeah, I want to jump in right there. So I just recently read an essay from 1946 about neurosis and the um, the reasons why middle class children, male children particularly, were likely to be neurotic. <clears throat> and again, this is from 1946. It talked about the difference between like an immigrant uh, working class family and a middle class family and uh, why the middle class family would be more likely to produce a neurotic child. Um, but... For me, the key to that reading that essay was to not consider working class and middle class as economic categories, but as social categories. Mm -hmm. And that also meant that big sections of what is the working class would be living in the conditions that in 1946 were described as middle class today. Yeah. So, you know, in a nuclear family cut off from a community, not doing uh, work domestic work that participated in a larger community. Um, so for, for instance, women who were middle class had domestic work to do, but it was, they had less of it, but it was also less productive in a communal sense. Yeah. Um, uh, and less socially rewarding for that reason. Um, and I would say that most of the American working class today is living in those kinds of conditions in middle class kind of conditions where you know the, the the dream is to be uh have a career to be successful as an individual even for working class people um absolutely so no i don't disagree with that i think what i'm drawing attention to is firstly that it they may be workers right and might be people who have nothing to sell but their labor but they also might be in very many cases people with university degrees which gives them a certain sort of assets which they can leverage um and perhaps also come from middle class families with, you know, home ownership. Again, that might that might mean that they you see them only as the upper end of the working class, um, the very top end of the working class. But nevertheless, that's uh, what they are. Others are kind of independent professionals um, who 
maybe have a more ambiguous position with regard to what would be consider, traditionally considered the working class. And I don't mean, you know, just industrial working class. I mean, you know, you include the service sector in that as well. Um, but the point being is that I think it's, it's with respect to the politics of it, um, is that even just examining it in terms of retail politics, things like access to higher education, while that might appeal to the whole or a large swathe of the working class who might aspire to be able to go to college and uh, get the kind of career advancement that that was meant to provide. And of course, the, the telling thing, of course, is that it doesn't provide that if people were missold the uh, idea of uh, social ascension through higher education, because there's just not enough uh, kind of professional jobs to mop up that uh, or to, to, to absorb all those people with degrees, um, which is, of course, the thing we've seen across Europe and North America over, over the past, uh, what is it, you know, probably about eight or nine years. Um, but, you know, it's telling that they were talking about canceling student debt in the US, but not, you know, payday loan debts, for example, which is something which uh, probably bears more heavily and more immediately on swathes of the working class. Anyway, that's not to say, you know, the, the point is, I think all socialist politics will always have a, a component of the middle class in it. Um, I think what is telling is that for a lot of uh, that with the withering of working class organizations, trade unions, and so on, uh, that these movements became perhaps more dominated by the middle class, um, by, by better off workers or by ind independent professionals and so on. Well, uh, on the payday loan versus student uh, loan debt question, the, uh, it's obvious to me that the payday loan scheme is uh, operative because of the basically low wages, you know, yeah. that, that and that the way to address, um, I mean, I think the argument would be you address the payday loan problem. First of all, you might you might regulate the hell out of those lenders. Right. And and. But also, uh, so like they can't charge as much uh, for being late on repayment because what they'll you get one of these payday loans and you'll end up owing like ten times what you borrowed um, if you're not careful. So you know they could stamp down on that. And I think there were work there were some proposals along those lines, but that's not very sexy. What's sexy is educational loans forgiveness because that might address the problem the underlying problem of low wages at least that's what people would think right that if you get an education then you can demand a higher wage and and if you don't have to if there's less of a barrier to education and more I, look i i think everybody should have access to higher education so i think yeah. it's a good i think it's a fine policy i'm just i'm just, I'm just pointing out that i'm not even it's not a moral question it's just like are we still what is addressing the concerns of the working class is the question and and i think payday loans seem obviously to address it but most people who are taking payday loans really want a better job and a yeah. better 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 conditions uh as in you know they are not looking you know to have um payday loan forgiveness and then you know because that will just be reproduced in a couple of months for these yeah. people you know. But I mean, I, I mean, to bring us back, I guess, to the book, I what I mean, because I don't want to get into a discussion necessarily of payday loans or no, you know, different policies, because um, I'm not creating policies here for a Sanders campaign that doesn't exist, for example. But the, <laughs> right, 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 right. But, but the the issue being, and I think our critique of left populism is primarily a political one, and about left populism's unwillingness to uh, force a break with the political establishment, or the, the, to still play a certain 
role of uh, respectability politics of wanting to play the the kind of game and you can see it with what happened in Greece probably most obviously where they had the popular backing to reject the memorandum that the uh, European Union the Troika threw at them um, and they were unwilling to make that break the leadership cowed from that and effectively committed an act of treason against the Greek people in in, in my view and our view in, in you know in the book um, and that applies to and that applies to Corbyn as well where Corbyn was torn between his democratic sense of what uh, of, of upholding the referendum and probably his own traditional euroscepticism and a loyalty to party members who were predominantly in favor of remaining in the EU despite having lost the referendum and he probably maybe lacked the drive the wherewithal i don't know he's not a lenin you know i mean he was now able to make the decisive political move necessary to back the referendum result and again the referendum was done it's not a very difficult thing it might have pissed off some labor members absolutely um and i'm not sure it necessarily would have led to, to victory but he obviously shied away from uh, uh, the the sort of break with the european union uh, the main or one of the main main important ways in which european politics is damped down, prevented from actually breaking out um, the, the way in which democracy is kind of kept in a little container. Um, and he didn't break with that, despite the fact that, uh, you know, a majority of British people had voted for it. So I think those are just two examples, uh, which kind of get to the nub of what our critique of it of, of left populism was, which was its, uh, its political lack of, uh, I don't know, willingness to break with the establishment. Well, in the case of Syriza, it's interesting, because in order to successfully uh, challenge the European Union, <clears throat> I think they would have needed to have a coalition of nations and working people behind them, not just the will of the Greek people. Because uh, because if, if you go just a nationalist route, you're possibly or likely trading in one form of austerity for another and possibly more severe form of like massive inflation. Oh, it, the, absolutely. And Greece would have been, they would have tried to crush Greece, but that would at least have provided well, some semblance, not, some possibility, some horizon of a future. Whereas, when you say they would have tried to crush Greece, that leaves out the reality of how capitalist capitalism functions all on its own. You don't even have to have like a no, German politically conspiracy. Led. Yeah. Yeah. You could just let the market, and the international market and the and the value of Greek currency do what it will do. But and, here's the question. Know. Here's the question where political leadership comes in, because it's not an easy solution. I mean, it's not like it's, hey, there's paradise here or you can choose penury and uh, dependence on the European Union forever. Like, which one do you choose? OK, it's not easy. I'm not pretending that it's like a facile choice. It's mm -hmm. saying that there's going to be a lot of short term pain, but that po there's a possibility of us rebuilding our society in the future and having some sense of a future rather than young Greeks emigrating in perpetuity up to richer northern European countries um, and being beholden and weighed down by debt permanently. Or you can choose, yeah, what I've just described, being weighed down by by debt permanently and having politics kind of enclosed, prevented from ever really erupting. So that's where political leadership comes in and saying to the Greek people, listen, you voted for this. Now, let me tell you the consequences of what this is. It means a lot of hardship, but it will provide sense of a future and, and create some sense of uh, common purpose. It will provide a nationalist project, right? That's what it, I mean, and a nationalist solution and some sovereignty of currency and 
that's what it would have provided a, a break from the European Union, the break from the discipline, the 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 disciplinary policies of the EU and a nationalist project to try to build capital inside Greece. Yeah. yeah. And, but I mean, that is, that is the, that's what's on the table. I mean, there's the, the idea of some cross European uh, simultaneous revolt, if not revolution, is something that isn't on the cards and you have to, you know, right. play the right. cards you're dealt and, and make the moves. And especially when you have the whole, you know, 61% of the Greek people saying, no, screw this, we're out, or uh, tacitly saying that, if not maybe consciously, explicitly saying it, then, you know, the the, the cards are kind of dealt there. And yeah, I think you have to go then. Um, yes, right. it's like, it, so, I, and the, the problem is that the idea of waiting for a simultaneous moment across Europe where you have other countries doing the same um, is... In in some sense, it's like uh, you know, it's waiting for Godot, really. I mean, because you're well, always going to be. There were other countries like Spain th were. that were in the similar predicament, and there, and if there had been an international left, like an actual socialist left, organizing workers and and some sort of international socialist party, there could have been a coalition of opposition. But but, for, right? but first you have to but first you have to act. You can't wait around for the like ideal conditions to to develop uh sort of organically and just and wait for that to happen in no, part right. because what yeah. is what is the message that the greeks sent by or rather by that cyprus and the series of leadership sent was that no you can't really try anything because uh you know the, the alternative is too is too devastating so we you need to like just kind of strum along and stay in the eu and take whatever crap they throw you and so I, I you know from the, so the position so, of a british uh, subject today you know, the from, from the position of the UK, you can actually say the real lesson historically is you can take the nationalist turn, but not if you're Greece. You know, you can do it if you're the UK. You can do it maybe if you're Germany. Germany could certainly take that nationalist turn um, and break up the EU. But you, it, if you're Greece, you're too weak to make that move, right? But it will. But these not the national rising nationalism is going to happen either way now. Right, it just start with the strongest players rather than the weakest players. Yeah, um, but I mean, I think that, you know, part of the problem is I think the fact that the left has largely ran away from the nation state, and not in a sense of some uh, kind of advance on the limitations of nationalism towards some sort of internationalism. It's either a sort of fantasy cosmopolitanism where you think that you're going to get together with comrades from across the world, but really it's just a couple of intellectuals in different countries chatting, which is cool, you know, yeah, yeah, good. Right. No, let's, I mean, you, you know, know. We, we can do that. But, but the point is, <laughs> you know, don't but, knock but my hobby, man. I mean, I enjoy <laughs> that shit, but no, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, but likewise, but you know, you, we have to be realistic about what that is and, uh, and, and, or a retreat into localism or into small scale, uh, little initiatives and so on. And so there has to be, you know, and it's in the Communist Manifesto, even, you know, trying the working class becoming effectively the nation. Um, and, the retreat from the nation state, even if we don't think that's the ideal form of politics and we're internationalists and so on, um, I think it needs to start there. And it needs to start there because the nation state has been the only container for some semblance of democracy and working class advancement that's ever been. Um, and a kind of stepping away from that and going, no, well, we don't want to get involved in any nationalism uh, ends up just being a retreat from the terrain of politics itself. Yeah, okay. Well, this is, I think, we've landed on a point of disagreement, although I don't have an internationalist project that I can say, look, we could do this instead. You're right, but I just, I feel as though 
you know, it's a flip of a coin whether or not a neoliberal internationalist politics is going to lead to socialism more effectively than um, uh, a bunch of uh, uh, nationalist projects, especially amongst the most developed nations will lead to socialism you know so, so i mean just, just just one thing on this is that and this is kind of a i guess a sub theme of the book or sort of a motif about that runs through it that the end of the end of history takes as a as an assumption that you know there was an actual end of history and the kind of nucleus of that is the historical defeat of the working class um at the end of the 1980s and that was a global phenomenon and that is, in some sense, our starting point. And I think if you ignore that or try to evade that or try to think like, yeah, 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 but it was merely a political defeat and there'll be a new cycle or whatever, I think not coming to terms with what an epochal break that was um, would, would leave you in the wrong place and leave you kind of trying to seek out solutions which um, which appeal back to the past or old forms of doing politics which are no longer relevant because the conditions are just radically different. Uh, we don't live in an age of mass politics anymore. And I think that's something that we have to start with, you know, that's your, that's your starting point. You have to grapple with that. If you don't, then you're assuming that there can be some sort of big internationalist movement, which will appear out of nowhere. Um, and with that in mind, the end of the end of history presents an opportunity in the breakdown of the old order, the breakdown, not just of neoliberalism, but perhaps as we argue, the end of history period, which um, I guess you could see as being composed of several elements, not just kind of neoliberal economic management, but post-politics, as we call it, globalism, or global uh, globalization, and so on. Capitalist realism, indeed, as well. Um, those the, to, get, to get beyond that, and with the crumbling of the end of history period, uh, you have the possibility for the rebirth of politics. Does that mean that it's the rebirth of the communist horizon or whatever you want to call it? No, not, uh, you know, not, not in and of itself. But I think creating the conditions for politics to emerge is important in the first step. That's, I'm not being stagist about it. I'm not saying, oh, you do this, and then next comes this. It's just we're playing the field in front of us, and the return of politics after having lived through you know, the 90s and 2000s, um, and indeed a good part of the 2010s, um, you think, well, that's, you know, that's the starting point. The, and, and we see that around us, and that's the, the cause for hope, albeit, or optimism, um, albeit the fact that it's a kind of more negative one. It's more based on the breakdown of, of the old rather than something new, positively new emerging. You know, I, I read recently a book um, about a book and I had some sections of a book. I think it was called The End of Ideology. It was written in the 50s. Daniel and, Bell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there was a sense that uh, the, the possibility for historic socialist change had ended as far back as when that book was written. Right. Um, and uh, it, the other thing is like uh, the socialist project as we understood it as as a as a led by the soviet union let's say in, a, in an international communist party with a real working class politics it also it it really started to disintegrate with the hungarian revolution and and um uh you know the and khrushchev's speech right i mean you you could point to moments where what we are feeling is missing had disappeared well before this 1989 moment sure you know and and um uh neoliberalism had emerged more than a decade earlier um as well uh i i i mean i don't disagree that fukuyama was an important figure in terms of defining 
the horizons of politics and especially America, but um, in that period. But I do also think the the continuity uh, of th that you know, like Dan pointing to people like Daniel Bell is important to understand. Also, that there was a, um, you know, we, I would point back to 1919 as the moment where we lost working class yeah. mass politics um, rather than 1989. Um, but but uh, so having said all that, what I, uh, I I I don't disagree with the a lot of what you're saying about this particular moment, nonetheless. And I wanted to ask you about. I'm going to rather than being in, as adversarial as I've my kids graduating from high school today. So I'm in a mood, but um, <laughs> um, uh, rather than being so adversarial, I'm going to ask you about uh, the lockdowns, which is you describe the lockdown as either coinciding with or actually causing a demobilization of the populist left. Um, and I'm, I'm wonder how sincere or serious you are about that description. I mean, do you believe that opportunistically, maybe the coronavirus and the lockdowns are going to shift the way we are politically, like really stamp out the notion of citizenship and transform us into permanent consumers like a la Wally, uh, there. There's my question. Well, I mean, I guess the first thing is that, I mean, in the book, I think we're, I mean, it's an irony, right? It's an irony that left populism tries to do socialist politics without the masses, not because it doesn't want the masses necessarily, but just because, we're, again, as I said, it, we're in an age past mass politics, and hopefully that can reemerge in some form again. Um, but the point is that it's just a, an irony, I guess, that lockdowns, which are the biggest demobilization of people, I think, in, in history, um, that uh, that that emerges exactly at the same time as the defeat of of left populists. So it's it's a quirk of history. It's a shutting of uh, shutting of the of the of the <laughs> what's the idiom I'm looking for the uh, the door of do uh, coffins have doors? Whatever shutting the <laughs> shutting the lid of the shutting the lid of the coffin. Yeah, that's what yeah. I'm saying. Yeah. Um, on on that whole on the kind of left populist moment. Um, as to whether it'll lead to a kind of complete change, I think that's concerning, and I think. The left has been too willing to urge on the lockdowns. Now, I'm gonna before I even go any further, something that really gets uh, on my nerves discussing lockdowns is that when I say lockdown, you understand an entirely different thing to what I mean, and the person listening to this is also thinking about something else because you're listening to it in different regional or national contexts, and there's a whole range of policies that could be there. And in some, in the one person listening to this is saying, "Wait, you're against lockdowns? So what? You think you should have like uh, big gigs of like a hundred thousand people in a in a closed stadium?" And you know, the other person understands like, "Oh, everyone should be put under house arrest." So anyway, there's mm -hmm. obviously a whole range of policies. So I, I'm, I, I we should be specific obviously you know i don't have any problem with them not having big concerts on or you know encouraging other methods of social We're distancing or whatever it, yeah think. exactly <laughs> you're you're infecting me through the mic i can i can already feel it i just i i you know i just feel the need to can you hear me through the mask yeah I mean, look, I, 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 I'm also, I should say that I don't uh, presume to speak for my other co-authors and co-hosts of the podcast because it's something that we've argued about consistently over the 
course of the past year and a half um, about the lockdowns, um, in part because also they're in a different context than in the UK, and it's not as bad as Brazil, where you you know had a peak of like four thousand deaths a day. So it's a different thing. Anyway, you know, I think wearing masks is very good and important. You know, indoors, um, everybody should wear a mask, and I think that's a, a small price to pay for not being locked down forever, right? I disagree. Like I'm I'm vaccinated. I don't have to wear a mask. In no, no, I don't think you should wear a mask if you're vaccinated. I think that's crazy. No, but, you know, pre <laughs> right. before the vaccinations. Anyway, like, without getting into the details of this, because mm. your question obviously was about demobilization and that maybe change in, in citizenship. I think it is concerning. I think it's telling that some of the places with the harshest lockdowns, it's like places like Spain and France, where you had to get like a letter to leave your house or to go further than a kilometer from your house, uh, or places with histories of fascist governments. Um, mm. I don't think that's purely accidental. Also places where you have to carry an ID card everywhere you go, whatever, something that, you know, anyway. Mm. Um, and I think it's I think it's deadly concerning. And I think the left has been too complicit with going where we're the people who care about people, not like the right, they're nasty, they don't care about you. Uh, we're the people who care and caring means caring for your health. And therefore, we should do more lockdowns, which one shows a limitation of in imagination in terms of what could possibly be done about the pandemic. Um, I don't think that lockdowns are the, you know, the the horizon, the total horizon of what could possibly be done. In fact, they're very much a response to failure. Their failure of states have to have prepared properly for a pandemic they knew was coming and they've known was coming for at least a decade, if not more, have made plans for it or have had some sort of planning which they then failed to hold to uh, and have underfunded health systems which were meant to be robust enough to be able to cope with an upsurge in cases. Um, and that they failed to do. And I think, you know, for one, we should be holding governments to account for those failures and for the fact that they had to do lockdowns in certain cases to prevent the health services from collapsing. Um, so that's it's a it's a product of failure. It's not a it's not a policy of of like first choice, right? Mm -hmm. um, so there's that. And secondly, to the left should be more robust in defending civil liberties um, and our and our right to kind of engage as citizens and be free in society. Um, and uh, under the assumption in part that, well, the authorities are locking us down. So our role is something else, not to just cheerlead uh, further lockdowns. Mm -hmm. um, and I think not understanding that dynamic and the left kind of going, well, we're again, we're the party of caring, which I think is a problem that the, we care too much about being caring um, rather than about actually taking power and of defending freedom. Um, and so I think that's led, led us into a, a really bad situation where the left has found itself on the wrong side of these things. You know, I, I um, agree with you, although I think it's important to try to distinguish between the left and the liberal mainstream. Um, and uh, and uh, when like I remember in the early 2000s, after 9-11, when I was out protesting against the war in Afghanistan early and like I was going to little cafes filled with liberal you know patrons about around my age i was just turned 30 people in their 20s you know and i got chased out of a cafe by this hippie who told me i was un-american because i was opposing <laughs> the um uh invasion of afghanistan and he was a liberal and i you know uh realized that you know this was the the burden i had to bear for being on the actual left and having the opinions I did about the invasion of Afghanistan. And I was out of step with the prevailing right thinking progressive at the time who was supporting uh, the, the, the invasion. I think that the left has to become accustomed to being in that position again. Yeah. 
um, and not being, and not by the blackmail because it will be blackmailed as like you don't care enough, you're you know you're you're ruthless or you're just direct, narrowly focused on power and you don't really care about whatever protecting people or you're uh, unpatriotic as the case may have it there. Uh, you're, you're not for taking the terrorism seriously. You're for the terror. Whatever it might be, that was a a two thousand iteration. Now you have a different one today, but it's the same crap, right? It's the same sort right. of blackmail. Um, and yeah. the left falls to it. I think falls for it probably too too readily. Um, they don't it was want to be, easier not to then. Right, I think it's so. Harder now, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Because I, now, I, yeah, now the people, yeah. I'm just now when they say, "Oh, you're for the terrorists," they don't mean somebody who is over there who you can identify with uh, as a victim of U.S. imperialism, but rather you're for the terrorist who might be some suburban white guy with a MAGA hat or something yeah, like that. Exactly. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it's a little, a little harder now. But anyhow, go ahead. No, I mean, I, I, I totally agree with that. And I think this is the thing about, I think, um, the left proposing itself as the people who care and the people who protect people. Um, one, that's a pretty important departure, I think, from left-wing tradition, I think, um, which was about seizing power, about freedom, um, about mm. collectivity, and not about uh, being... Um, being a better nanny, I guess. Um, and so, you know, th so that it's a, it's a departure from, from a kind of whole historical tradition and it makes it so readily um, susceptible to this, exactly this sort of blackmail that, you know, we've just been describing um, and most, you know, especially in, in kind of today's conditions uh, where you're meant to be, yeah, you're like any um, exercise of power by elites can be justified and is justified not in terms of uh, <laughs> reference to uh, traditional authority, morality, whatever. You know, it's done in terms of caring for people and in terms of uh, making your life more flexible or enjoyable or whatever. Um, and and especially now with the pandemic, about about caring and protecting for people. And that seems to be the kind of coming ruling ideology. And the left will fall for it entirely and end up kind of, at best, uh, the sort of um, a, a sort of parasitic moralizer on on the back of kind of the ruling class or the kind of dominant parties saying actually yes you know we kind of generally agree with you lockdowns are good but we would actually do lockdowns in a smarter way or we would do it in a way that made sure that it didn't harm minorities so badly or whatever effectively you know mm -hmm. proposing minor minor adjustments to what is existing policy um, so, you know, I think we should stop caring so much. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you, especially now that, you know, um, like, uh, like I said, I need to myself distinguish between the left and, and the mainstream progressive liberal discourse, because I run into a lot of people online who seem to uh, believe that if they the more paranoid they become about germs um, and and the more focused they are on health the more noble they are like you know someone said well mm -hmm. i haven't gotten the, i haven't gotten a cold all year so i think i'll never end this this lockdown life because <laughs> i it, i haven't gotten the flu I there's too many the people who enjoyed it too much that's that's just concerning <laughs> it really is it's like wow okay so you didn't get a cold you also didn't see anyone and huge amounts of people <laughs> were unemployed and uh you know you also went probably a little insane. Have you considered how insane yeah. you are? Um, 
But, but you know, on the other <laughs> hand, you got all this uh, this kind of authority, you know, the social authority, which is backed up by morality and science at once. And so you can yell at people for not wearing masks or not behaving properly. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, that's a hell of a drug, too. So, yeah, I wanted to bring up something you said earlier about how we've abandoned mass politics and um, which I think mass politics would be the kind of populism that we are trying to embrace. Right. Mm. Uh, um, but and the reason you, earlier you said with socialism, the reason you wouldn't define it as socialism is because it wasn't a working class politics. And I think mass politics, we may not have abandoned it as much as we think, because I think mass politics is the politics of coalition building, is the politics of the mass as a just a group of individuals rather than as a political, de, politically defined group with an aim. You know, like the working class had a political aim and the mm -hmm. masses don't have a political aim. Um, they, but I mean, just, by, but, oh, sorry ahead. to interrupt, yeah, but I mean, no by problem. mass politics, I meant something a little bit just more basic is that people are integrated and like in the thick web of relations mediated through organizations. Uh, and that could be all sorts of things. It could be churches, you know, if on the more conservative side of the spectrum, uh, it can be civic associations, it can be trade unions, it can be political parties, whatever it might be, it might be social movements, but something which actually like binds people in a, in a way which demands more commitment than just signing up to a Facebook event or turning out on the streets in this spontaneous but quite ephemeral protest moment. And so that's what I mean is that, you know, society no longer has that thick web anymore. I mean, uh, only elites maybe have that because they might have, you know, the sort of kind of elite clubs where they are able to converse and maybe come to some agreement on certain things at certain times, which then get called conspiracies. But, you know, effectively, that's, that's what happens. But, you know, the masses no longer you know, we don't belong to these organizations anymore. And so that thick web of, of, uh, of belongings and commitments leaves us, I think, increasingly, but I, I don't know what comes first, but put it this way, it leaves us increasingly skeptical of organizations, of even of hierarchy, because there's this idea that freedom is really ba basically knowing no one telling you what to do ever. Right. And in a political party, you'll have someone telling you what to do or you should. Otherwise, it's not a very good political party, I think, um, you know, that you have some legitimate authority, which is able to exercise coercion. And in, 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 that doesn't mean beating up on people. That just means literally you go here and do this. You're going to go and like leaflet on this street this day, you know, just the mm -hmm. basic things of political organization. Um, and because we've become so atomized, we're very we're very maybe scared, skeptical of that. Um, but there's a there's a sort of flip side to that, and I I don't personally have a, a straightforward answer to that. I'm just kind of gesturing at this paradox that exists today, which is that on the one hand there seems to be a very strong desire for a sense of social purpose and for belonging, because when there are protests, people feel such a sense of elation and a sense of purpose uh, and a sense of meaning um, that you're all there together and you feel the sense of collective power. And people, you know, you and you see it. You can look at images of protests from. Chile, which is an extremely neoliberalized society, um, much more so probably than other even Latin American countries, or you can see the Gilets Jaunes, or you can see whatever protests in the US that you might be familiar with. And, you know, people very um, overwhelmed, I guess, emotionally sometimes by, by that feeling. And that's great, and it's very important, and I'm not cynical about that at all, even if I'm cynical about certain other aspects of, uh, of, of kind of contemporary protest culture. Um, so what you have, I guess the paradox is that there's on the one hand this very uh, 
strongly felt need and, and desire for that sense of social purpose and belonging at the same time as there's a deep skepticism of organizations and anything that binds you in because it's very easy to opt in and opt out and there's it's very low cost right um we're not used to something where you have to opt in and you pay five dollars a month or whatever it might be and you're stuck there and you're and it's a, it's a commitment which is something that not only you're held to by uh, by the organization itself, but which you hold yourself to as well as something you're not going to let yourself just float away from because it, things turn out, you know, not so good or like, eh, don't feel like it this, this, this day, or this doesn't really satisfy what my idea of politics was this with this week or whatever. Um, so as a consequence, I think, and, and, or one reflection of that thing that I'm talking about, the latter thing about skepticism towards organizations, um, is, the, the the feeling that anything which involves any sort of intermediary is oppressive, right? And I think this is, a, in one sense, a consequence of, well, the tail end of like 1968 politics, counterculture, and so on. Um, this idea that freedom is just absolute individual sovereignty or consumer sovereignty, um, and that you know, and that that anything which demand makes demands of you is inimical to freedom, um, and that's really problematic. And that's one one of the elements to, which is uh, impedes the development of of mass politics once again uh, in our times today, because um, because people are very skeptical and very scared of that. Um, can I can so, I jump in here? Yeah, go can in. Say something about okay about freedom here. Um, I just recently was rewatching a show called The Good Place. You ever seen this show? I I tried. I, I could. I just couldn't get into you, it. But I've watched a couple of episodes. Yeah, yeah, you don't have to have loved it. Um, but in that show, there's a. Uh, if you're in the good place, you can call upon this sort of robot character who can just make things appear for you, right? So you can say, "Oh, hey, Janet, uh, I want a Dr Pepper, or I want uh, a Lamborghini," and you know, boom, there it will be. And you're actually very free in the good place just to get whatever you want as an individual um it turns out that people also want to have relationships with each other and that's where the show really is about what well, it's really about and not just getting janet to give you things but i think the problem with the that definition of freedom uh in the real world of just getting the kind of objects and things that you want to consume or enjoy is not only the the fact that it's a personal enjoyment but also that the, the the kinds of limits and uh, institutions and power structures that are required to create those objects are ignored, are are hidden, are obscured. Because in fact, you don't get to go into the market freely and just consume uh, for your personal desire. In, in fact, you're disciplined and the society is disciplined into producing it in a particular yeah. way. And so con- the flip side of consumer society is capitalist production of commodities. And so we have to think about how the big institutions of power that exist are those productive institutions, are, is the, the workplace, um, whether it's in the service sector or in the factory or wh- where, wherever it might be. So we actually still are completely disciplined, but we think of ourselves as free only in this limited part of our life, which is defined as leisure. No, I think that's that's very good. No, no, that's absolutely right. I think we're completely blind to compulsion to these other kind of more blind forms of compulsion uh, in work, um, but also in the market. Kind of the, though, I think maybe people are maybe more aware of of that. But you know, in work, uh, it's it's to a certain extent naturalized. Um, while at the same time, we're overly sensitive, perhaps, to other forms of compulsion. 
uh, not just political, but just even voluntary ones or, or uh, forms of compulsion, which end up, which are the necessary cost of actual voluntaristic politics, right? Of joining an organization and being wedded to it and being told, okay, today you're going to go out and leaflet on the street, you know, things mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I, 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 but the other thing that I think that, uh, you know, in the, in the, in a, in a little minute, uh, well, in a few minutes, a little minute in, in a small minute, as opposed to a big, <laughs> big minute, a few minutes, I want to um, talk about this essay that was published by InNotes called Onward Barbarians, because some of the things we're talking about now, we should talk about then. If you have another like half an hour to 40 minutes to talk for the second part of this uh, about that, I'd, I'd like to do it. But before we get to that, um, I, I just want to uh, ask you the final, final question I'd written down for this segment, which is given how we're looking at a future where we maybe all live underground uh, and press buttons to have DoorDash deliver our food and, you know, spend all of our time doing this kind of thing right now, like we're doing right now. And given the fact that we are atomized even more thoroughly than we were a year and a half ago, how do you feel about the end of the end of history now? And is the death of this left po populism or the socialist socialism as left populism presenting us with opportunities at all or are we just fucked at this point what do you think i mean one note we put in the book actually is that it might be one of the grim consequences uh, kind of somewhat unforeseen of the end of the end of history is that the return of politics takes the form of a reheated culture war um, and a culture war which seems much more politically inflected than the culture wars of the 70s, 80s, 90s did, um, because they're no longer just about moral issues. It's not about, you know, abortion, um, which I think it's wrong to just classify that as a purely moral issue, because it's fundamentally about freedom of, of the body and so on. But anyway, without getting into that, mm -hmm. uh, the issues today are much more political, things like immigration, for example, but they take place or they, you know, the, the, that those conflicts over that occur in a completely spectacular and uh, in some ways maybe deracinated sort of way where you have people posing as the defenders, the true defenders of the nation, as nativists and so on. And then you have the left uh, also kind of doing this performative open all borders right now kind of politics. Um, and so they, it also takes on this form of, of culture war and of, of positioning and uh, I guess a narcissistic form of politics, which is more about reflecting who you are and what you want to say about yourself than about actually achieving political ends. Um, mm -hmm. So that's one thing. And that that's, I think, probably most visible in the US, which seems particularly prey to this form of uh, culture war, but not alone, but not only. And, you know, I wish that I could just say, you know, MAGA, right? Make America go away. This is just <laughs> a U.S. problem. Leave the rest of us alone. But unfortunately, that's not the case because uh, we see the same sort of thing. I mean, I see the same sort of thing even in Brazil, which is, you know, rather different and hasn't doesn't have the same history as you I know, just want to put Europe I, or whatever. I'm a patriot, man. Don't don't go knocking the American. No, that's good. You do you do you. Just you know, don't involve anyone else. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, okay. All right. Listen, I think we're gonna let's just end this section here. We got 46 minutes here. Um, people should stick around in the parrot room. We'll be talking about end notes and the culture war and all the good stuff that you pay five bucks to to get. Go and join us in the parrot room and the Patreon and all that. Thanks for watching this Zero Books video. If you enjoyed it, 
subscribe to this channel and click on the notifications bell so that you'll be alerted whenever we release a new video. You should also consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons get access to our Inside Zero Books podcast every week and can get access to the Zero Books Book Club and help us to continue making online content from the left. <laughs>